We're going to be looking at a a different legal concept as we continue this month, um, looking at the roles that Jesus has uh, and and fulfills from a a legal perspective. And it's all very wonderful and exciting. So uh, I thought since um, this is kind of maybe a little bit more tedious material, I would have a picture of of a nice car up here for you to look at. Uh, if you know if it gets too boring, you can just look at that cool car. It is a very cool car, and we're talking today about a different. Uh, that's not just actually random. That actually has to do with something. Uh, we're talking about a, a slightly different concept uh, today than what we've been talking about, and um, we're talking about the issue of property, um, legal matters, sometimes ownership. Um, property is a difficult thing to figure. And so we have uh, a bunch of people that, uh, that figure all that stuff out. And that's always been the case, actually. So uh, just a, this kind of a this picture of this car is actually a model. If you see any pictures of this particular car, it will be a model because only 16 of them were ever built. And uh, it's called the Teardrop. I think that's it's a nickname. It's not the actual name. It's got a longer name. It's a French car. They were... Uh, there's not that many built because they are uh, the, their rareness has to do with the fact that they were actually all built by hand. So that they're a little bit slightly different, um, all of them, and uh, they they didn't come out of a, a high production mold or anything. So so they're they're pretty valuable. Well, in um, 2001, uh, a 1938 teardrop uh, like this was stolen from a Milwaukee uh, garage. And uh, was in a warehouse or garage, guy owned it. It was uh, it was actually already in parts. The guy had bought it to to restore it, and just had never gotten around to it. Someone caught wind that he had it, and uh, you'll understand why it got stolen. All the documents for it were stolen too. Whoever did it knew what they were doing, and and so they they stole this thing, uh, forged documents that said he had sold it to him, and shipped it overseas to Sweden. You know, because, you know, it's kind of hard to track down people uh, when they go to Sweden. Uh, well, in time, the guy had restored it. And uh, with false documents, uh, you know, that said that he had sold it. He then sold it uh, on, I don't know, through some, some, not on eBay, but he sold it through some reputable company, actually, uh, yeah, from out east somewhere, and, and then, uh, but he sold it through that company to a guy in Illinois. Well, in the meantime, that's been reported as stolen. So when the guy who bought it uh, in Illinois went to register it, it came up as stolen, and they wouldn't register it, of course. So now, as soon as they did that, it notified the guy who owned it uh, that someone was trying to register it and everything else like that. So, so now it's all in custody. Uh, and, uh, well, it, this should be an open and shut case as far as, far as who owns it. Here's the problem. Uh, the guy who reported it as stolen wasn't the man that it was stolen from because the man who has, it was stolen from was dead. He died in 2005. Uh, this, this sale took place in like 2015. So, uh, to complicate matters more, the original owner, who, who had died in 2005, his son and his, uh, his wife were already passed away as well, and he had no other heir, so he 
uh, he willed it. Uh, he willed a stolen vehicle to his uh, to his cousin, and uh, so so it's, now it's starting to get a little complicated, right? And uh, so then uh, it, this went to court, of course, and it wasn't an open shut case. In fact. Uh, the uh, there's this there's a time period, and I don't know all the legal stuff, but there's a document that has to be filed within six years um, of of doing this uh, of of not necessarily of the theft, but of what they call wrongful ownership, um, and that was not filed until it was attempted to be sold and and all that. So that was 2015, but that that document has to be filed within six years of the. Uh, of the whatever the wrongful ownership is, so so of course since it happened in 2015, the judge decided that this now belongs officially to the guy who bought it from Illinois, uh, because 2015 is more than six years after 2001. Well, this got appealed because as I I couldn't have filed back then. I wasn't the owner yet. You know, this is the guy who was the original owner. Uh, this this doesn't pertain to me. So uh, the uh, he had filed the, the the document almost as soon as as he knew of the sale. So at an appellate court, they overturned it. Says no, that starts from 2015 with the wrongful sale or the wrongful the the, the wrongful purchase uh, as what he filed his document in regards to, not the original theft. So so this is a wrongful ownership. And therefore, uh, it's it's uh, you know, and, and the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is actually this is in the news this week because it's going to court now. It's going to be decided on by the Supreme Court here in Wisconsin. And what uh, what is important about this, um, <laughs> what makes this really interesting, is that the original judge who had sided with the purchaser and not with the original owner. Is now sitting on the Supreme Court, so so will she recuse herself and, and various things like that. So so it's kind of interesting, but it brings us to the point. It's not just a nice story, and if that's kind of boring, again, just look at the picture here. It's a it's a nice cool picture. Uh, they are kind of a cool car, but this brings us to the topic that we're going to to be referencing today, and who we are talking about, and Isaiah. 54 verse 5, he says, Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Well, we've already talked about some of these titles, haven't we? Um, We've talked about God as the creator, or Christ as the creator or maker. We've talked about him more recently as the husband. And so, so we know that this passage is talking about Christ. It's referencing Christ. And this verse might be the most powerful passage in terms of identifying Christ as God in the Bible. Because we, he, we have like this cross-reference here. We have a bunch of titles all referring to the same person. So we know that, that from some of these that we've already covered that it is talking specifically about Christ. And we now have... Two titles at the end of this. 
He says, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. That's the one we're going to be talking about. And he says, the God of all the earth, he is called. And so, Christ is given unequivocally the absolute title of God. And we can just do that by saying, this guy has all these titles. One of them is God. And it is specifically Christ speaking to. But we're going to talk about not the God of the earth, but talking about Christ as the Redeemer. It was a word that we use a lot, but the word, excuse me, the word has to do with property. And the concept has to do with property. And we'll explain why in just a second. I want to talk about Christ as our Redeemer. What does it mean? As we said, it's clearly Christ. But I want to make that more obvious than we've even done so yet. Job 19, verse 25 says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the, at the end he will take his stand upon the earth. And when we read that, we might be tempted to think that that's talking, and it, and it possibly is. You know, a lot of verses in the Bible have multiple points that they're referencing, that they're talking to, or about, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, the writer or the speaker might have been referencing one thing in reference to them, and, and at the same time, God is using them to speak of a different point in time. We have a lot of references like that. Well, this is kind of like that. Job is, is speaking of his own immediate situation. He's speaking of his, uh, his problem. And, and he's wanting relief. And he's seeing God, because he doesn't understand Christ yet, and all that. He's seeing just generally the, the concept of God as, as bringing him back from this, from this problem that he's got. His health and his, his family, his loss, and all the, the property, and everything that's just happened to Job... And he might be looking for a time where God would, would come, whether physically or, or figuratively, and, and restore him. That's what he's looking for, something short term. But, but God is using this statement to reference something else. Now, as I say, we might be tempted to think, oh, at the, at the end of all time, um, that he will come and stand upon the earth, think, thinking of, of the end of the world. And it's possible that it's talking about that. We'll consider that. Uh, but there's, a, there's another point in time. We should recognize that the word, word last or at the last sometimes just simply means later uh, or finally or eventually like that. It can mean the absolute last point in time, but it can just mean eventually, some, some later time. Which brings us to Luke chapter 1, verse 68. At this point... Where we're reading in Luke, Jesus is just a baby. He's being presented at the temple to be dedicated and, and to uh, actually to be redeemed himself. And it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's kind of an ironic statement because here he is being redeemed. And I'll explain what that means. And yet, he is the Redeemer at the point in time in which he's being redeemed by his parents. So we need to talk a little bit about uh, what redeemed means. 
It's a property regulation. The Old Testament is not just a religious book like we think of, uh, of, of the Bible, but it, it governed more than just their, their religion. It governed everything about their life. It was, a, it was their uh, civil policy. It, it covered, among other things, the, their government and how it was to be set up. It, it covered property regulations. One of the things that they had to do was to, uh, to try to keep property in the family. So there was inheritance laws and all these different types of things going on. And, and so, so a lot of these are property regulations. They had uh, one of the things God tried to teach them in their civil government was his authority and his, his importance. And so they had to bring when uh, anything was born, the first of it, they had to bring money. God said, that's mine. The best or the first of everything belongs to me. If you want it, you have to pay me for it. Right? And this is the process of redeeming. That's called redeeming, to buy back. In other words, uh, if you want, here's this child. You think he's yours because he was born, but he's really mine. So if you want him, you have to buy him back from me. Uh, And so this is what Mary and Joseph were doing at the temple. They were buying Jesus back as their firstborn from God. uh, The concept of redeeming has, there's a lot of concepts of redeeming. Perhaps the the best concept of, of redeeming if we wanted to think about it in our terms today, it would be like a second mortgage. What? So, so they had some advanced concepts back then. A second mortgage, perhaps from a bank's perspective, is a great idea. From our perspective, it's a stupid idea. And we think of this as this great, wonderful thing. It is the idea that once you've paid off or at least significant amount of your property and you have equity... You decide to pay for it again. What a great idea. That's a stupid idea. Really? I'm going to pay for the same house twice. That's a dumb idea. I know there's, there's reasons why people do it. But really, when we think about it, it's like, man, I already paid for that. Now I'm just going to throw $50,000 back onto the, to the bill and say, here, I want to do it all over again. Well, that's kind of the idea. Not that it's a dumb idea, but this is kind of the concept of, I had it once, and now I've got to buy it back again. So we want to know our Redeemer. We've talked a little bit about the job that he does. Uh, We're going to look at more detail Because we're now talking about the purchase of people. This woman, her name is Elizabeth Keckley. Uh, She was a slave uh, in the mid-1800s. She was born probably around the, or just after the the beginning of the 1800s somewhere. I don't know all the dates and everything like that. It's not really interesting to me. But uh, her owner moved to and took the family and took the, everybody to St. Louis. Now, St. Louis is an interesting city because there were a lot of free black people in St. Louis, and, and she got to mingle with some of these free, freed women, what they call 
And, uh, uh, but she also got to mingle with, so, so there were a lot of uh, very progressive white people that, that were a little bit more accepting of this. Now, there's mixed. There's, there's slave owners and there's non-slave owners. It's kind of a mix. She's a dressmaker. Uh, and, and if you look at that, I mean, she's wearing kind of a nice dress for the time. You know, I don't know if that would be considered a nice dress today. Not great picture, but, uh, but she was an incredible dressmaker for the time. Problem being, she's a slave and she couldn't earn money. Really, uh, you know, at least in the Deep South, she wouldn't have been able to earn money. What she does is interesting. She decided to start making dresses for free to people the upper-class white women. And, and she just got a clientele, and she'd make some dresses for free. Um, they would provide her the material, and she would make the dresses. Well, she got good enough, and she got a good name for it, and she said all of a sudden, um, I want to be paid now. Well, now, they, her dresses were like the fashion statement. Uh, in in, uh, in in St. Louis. And so like, you want to dress by this lady, you're going to have to pay for it. And so she starts making money. Uh, and she was able in 1852 to purchase her freedom. So about like, you know, 12 years or so before, or 10 years, whatever, before she could be legally free, she earned her own freedom. She She redeemed herself in a sense. She worked for a little bit more and purchased the freedom of her son. In 1860, eight years later, she had gone to Washington. And uh, on a particular day, she met the, the wife of a very important person. She met and uh, got, the as a client, Mary Todd Lincoln. And she actually became her close confidant, her closest of confidants. Uh, and she just took up residency in the White House and was the official dressmaker for the First Lady. Among her other clients, interestingly enough, was the wife of Robert E. Lee and the wife of Jefferson Davis. Think of that uh, variety of clientele, the, the people on the opposite sides. And she's just kind of in the middle of it all, uh, of a freed black woman. And she was only one of a few who had this opportunity because, as I say, most slaves would not have the opportunity to earn money. And she just happened to be in this situation where she could accomplish this. And so she's a very rare person indeed. However, when we look at my predicament, my predicament is a lot different than hers. Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 37 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? What can you give? You see, once I've purchased myself, how do I purchase myself back? I have no equity. I do not enjoy the position that Elizabeth Keckley had. I have no means I have nothing that is of relative equal value to my soul. The price of a slave was couple like $1,200. That's expensive back then. That's a big chunk of change. Hard to come up with. Might, might as well be a million dollars. I suppose if you're a, the, the best dressmaker in St. Louis, you can do that. 
I have nothing to earn that is the value of my soul. I am a lot more like Elizabeth Keckley's son. Not really that skilled. Can't earn his own way out of it. And someone had to do it for him. His mother did it for him. That's me. I have sold my soul. We use that phrase all the time, but literally that's what we've done. And so he needed a kinsman. He needed someone to to purchase his freedom, his liberty. And that's what I need. Well, what owns me? Or who owns me? We are tempted to think that Satan owns my soul. Please. That is old. Satan does not own me. Satan has never owned me. God does not purchase anything from Satan. He doesn't do business deals with Satan. But he is a redeemer. He does purchase us back. So if we want to look at who owns us, we, we should look at who or what Christ purchases us from. Because never in the Bible does he purchase us from Satan. Not mentioned anywhere. He does not redeem us from Satan. Satan's got enough problems of his own. He doesn't need to be worrying about what he owns. Who owns me? Well, I have three owners in the Bible that Christ redeems me from. These are my three owners. First of all, Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So the first owner that I have, He redeemed us from lawlessness. That is, uh, He bought us back from sin. Uh, We've all looked at something. uh, And I know it's kind of weird. My owner is not a a person, but my owner is a thing. But uh, here... we've all looked at something somewhere and said, this is worth giving up my life for. This is is an equivalent value for my soul. Uh, And so I sold my soul, quite literally, for sin. Uh, So uh, when I've placed my value at sin, I've actually really undervalued myself. Um, I, I have, I've, I've decided that my, my entire existence, my entire future, my entire being is, is worth this action or this, this thing that I desire to do. What is it that you have determined your wealth or your worth uh, to be? What, what low value will you accept? What low price have you accepted for or the exchange of your soul? Sin is the first thing that owns me. My second owner, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Well, He redeemed us. Here, he talks about redeeming us from the law. And that's kind of a strange idea. Well, 
understand that they had to be brought back from the law. Uh, in, in trying to determine the value of our soul, uh, one of the things that we look at is what a person tries to do. We struggle to try to purchase ourselves back. We think, well, I'm going to work my fingers to the bone and I'm going to get myself out of this situation, which is a noble idea, except, of course, as we've said, you can't do it. And what is the method that people have considered their soul worth is what they're willing to try to do to get it back. And so for some people, and quite frankly for a lot of us at one point or another, we've all thought that good deeds or or doing some sort of works, some sort, excuse me, some sort of law is worth our soul. That's what God will accept as a payment. Uh, doing kind things. And look, at kind things are nice. Uh, in the Old Testament, they, they believe that their value, and, and we still do this today, is w- worth what we don't do. I don't do this action. Well, look, at I'm, I'm good because I don't do this and I don't do that. And, and we think that because we don't do certain things, we have redeemed our soul. And he says, no. I'm redeeming those who are under the law. They have not been able to successfully get themselves out of this or out from under this owner. It's an inadequate price that you're trying to pay. The law is not worth your soul. You are worth so much more than a list of rules that you think. And there's all sorts of different lists of rules that people think they have to keep. I'm not saying there's, there's not rules that we're supposed to do, but they're not rules that can earn your way out of your situation. You are under law until you are redeemed from the law. The last one, a little bit of a longer passage, and we'll try to explain it whenever we open up something to Revelation. I know there's a little bit of, like, oh no, here we go. Let's try to get through this. He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice I heard was the sound of harps playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not been defiled, have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits, for God and for the Lamb and from their mouth. No lie was found, for they are blameless. And so the last one we're looking at is He talks about being redeemed from the world or from mankind, specifically. And and I want to back up because whenever we read this verse, we go, oh no. Uh, what does this mean? Are there only 144,000 going to heaven? Uh, because that's a, clearly the reference here. And no, that's not. We need to understand that Revelation, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, uh, but I do want you to understand a little bit about Revelation. It's a symbolic book, and it, full of symbolic pictures and numbers. And uh, 
we would, if we read the greater text here, if that was our purpose to, to go through and, and look at Revelation and understand all about it, Revelation, we'd, I would have a, a longer text here because he talks about, and, and there's a similar passage here in, in Revelation talking about the 144,000 a little bit earlier. And in that section, he, he talks about not just a group of 144,000, but he talks about a, a separate group that was an innumerable number. Uh, the, an uncountable number. Um, so, so that's the, not. There, there are two different groups that he's referencing. And if we read this larger context of these, of these, both of these passages in Revelation, we would find that the hundred and forty-four thousand is a reference to some Jewish people, uh, a specific group of Jewish people, not just all Jews even, but they were referenced to Jewish Christians, and that was a reference to Jewish Christians who had been killed. Uh, as the first martyrs, of course, remember that the first Christians were only Jewish for, for several years until the Gentiles were allowed to become Christians. And, and, and these people get special honor. They get a special, there's a small limited group of them because for, it was only a small limited time that the church was only for a group of Jewish people. And so these kind of get, they're, they're kind of like in the Hall of Fame. Sort of, if you think about it. And, and there's a small limited number of group of people that offered themselves and, and were martyrs for Christianity. They were persecuted. They were killed and chased all over the place. And they have been redeemed from mankind. Well, there's another group, of course, Gentile Christians uh, came in later. And they were the second group of people. Uh, they get their own little mention. Uh, a, a group of Gentile people who were, who were killed. But these get special mention. But I only mention this one because it has a reference in here that I want to look at, and that is that they were redeemed from the earth, from mankind. It's a reference not just to the past, but being redeemed is a reference to the future. That we will be taken out of an ownership that we cannot avoid. We are on a planet and surrounded by mankind. And it's almost like it owns us. It, and, and you can kind of feel that. It's, you feel helpless sometimes when you, you get up and you're just kind of going through your, your everyday uh, schedule. And you just sometimes not like to be a part of it. And we do little things to, to get ourselves away from being a part of it. We go on camps and we, take, we, we try to redeem ourselves, don't we? We try to get away from it all. And go out to the woods, or go here, or go there, go to the beach, go wherever you want to go to get away from it all. We try to redeem ourselves. God says, nope, because you've got to come back. You've got to go back to work. You've got to go back to wherever. And you've got to be a part of this world. And this world wants to claim you. It wants to own you. But we do not belong to this world. Christ came to redeem us from this world, to get us back from the things that that are around us, that, that seek to take ownership, the principles of this world, the greed, the desires, the bad habits that are all around us, that, that every day require me and demand me to be a part of them. 
God says, I'm going to redeem you from that. There's going to be a day where I redeem you from that, where we go on a, a vacation where we don't have to come back. We're going to be redeemed. We're redeemed from sin, from the law. And there will be a point in time where we are redeemed from this world. What a great thing to look forward to. So as we end this morning, I'm talking about our, our great Redeemer. And knowing Him. Knowing that we have a great Redeemer. Let's not try to purchase ourselves with, with the law. Let's understand what He's done. Let's understand that we are worth more than sin and the things around us. And so the only question that remains that I would take, that I would would have you take with you, is have you accepted the terms? The Redeemer has has offered us this, this great arrangement, as we talked about, this great covenant. Have you accepted the terms? Have you read the fine print? Have you understood the terms? Of this agreement. There is a custody dispute over you. There's a a big custody dispute. Everybody wants a little ownership. Of you. And to whomever. You accept the price from. Will be your owner. The question is who's going to win. Who. Owns you. Think about the things that that you consider your worth. Consider as you leave, if you have accepted the terms that Christ offers you.